Hello and welcome to the Football Collective Podcast. The football research podcast for debate and discussion, highlighting members of the collective, their research and all football related things in their life. Our first guest on this series of podcasts is an author, a screenwriter and a Watford fan. Without giving too much away, I'm going to introduce Mr Dougie Brimson. How are we Dougie? Very well, thank you. A nice introduction. First of all, thank you for coming on. Uh, thanks for giving up giving up your time. Um, how's your summer been? Did you enjoy the World Cup? Uh, the World Cup was great. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I think um, obviously, but no, I, I thought it was a fantastic tournament. Um, I think Russia did a great job. I think ultimately the real winners of the tournament were Russia um, because it opened people's eyes to. Um, what a glorious country that actually is. It's very interesting you say that. We'll probably come on to that a bit later on in the show. Um, yeah. But but first of all, if you just like to, for people that don't know you, just give a quick background to yourself, um, what what sort of things you've gone through in your life. Like I know from researching on you, but other people won't, that might have led you to, to this point where we are now. Um, I was born in um, Hertfordshire. In 
policing, media perception, political involvement, family involvement, and all these kinds of things. And using these anecdotes that we were getting to basically back up our own arguments. And um, we, we got to the point, the Euro 96 approach, and we knew we had a window, you know, of, of being right book, right time. And uh, so we thought, we're going to have to pitch it at the publishers. And I walked into WH Smith's, picked up um, a football book, which I think was going in a autobiography, which was published by Headline. And I wrote to Headline, and basically they did a handle. And um, we were, I was actually filming, a, well, we were both filming in Hamburg, um, doing a, a skinhead movie of all things, ironically. Um, and uh, we got the call to say they wanted to do the book, and the rest is history. So that's nineteen ninety six. You've you've uh, co-wrote your first book, and you, you, in in the blog post on the football collective um, website that people can go on and find out. I'll put the link on on that when I post the podcast. Um, you said there were similarities between the preperception of of uh, the tournament, and I I personally see the similarities between the media. Um, for this year's World Cup and the the preperception of what football fans might do, um, can can you explain in more detail about what the sort what sort of things the media were saying in '96 and if it was similar to this year's World Cup? Well, in '96, you're right. The fact that there were people that were saying things like irritates me more than anything is that the media haven't really adapted to what's gone on. Um, in 96, they were talking about World War Three breaking out pretty much across the United Kingdom. And you had stories of, um, you know, uh, Ivan and whatever, and, you know, hands coming with his mob of lads from Dortmund to lay waste to the UK and all that sort of stuff. And it was all just, you know, made up rubbish. Um, and it causes more problems. It caused more problems then uh, than it did now. But one of the, one of the things you got there was, of course, one of the, the consequences of that was you had every mob in the land suddenly thinking, right, we we can show out here. You know, we can. You know, when you're in the plane in London, we can all go to London, and uh, which is exactly what happened. And particularly when the Scots came. And so you've got, you know, on that night in particular, I mean, I was in the West End every night throughout the tournament, and some nights it was, most of the, you got problems, but it wasn't even the club problems, it was, you know, lag v police problems. Uh, but it was tremendously exciting, which is what is at the core of the issue, of course. And then you got to this tournament, you know, and if you hark back to the stuff that the BBC was saying, the article in the Sun, which was what uh, in the Star, sorry, which is probably one of the most shameful pieces of related journalism I've ever seen. Um, all building up to the fact that the Russians were going to, you know, we were looking at mass hooligan casualties, racism, homophobia, all kinds of things, and none of those things were true. It was all based on lies because if you did, if, if you've been to Russia like I have. Um, on numerous occasions, if you talk to Russian people and Russian football fans, we knew exactly what was going to happen, that the, the authorities in Russia were going to really clamp down on uh, any potential troublemakers, and it was in their interest to provide a tournament that was going to showcase Russia. Because one thing that's unique, not unique about Russians, but it, it, 
it's paramount to the Russian people is that they are so proud of their country and its history. And anything which damages that, or they perceive to damage that, is, is um, frowned upon. And so it was obvious from day one, from the day we, they were awarded the tournament, that there was never going to be any trouble. And that's exactly what unfolded. And the problem that the Russian authorities had is certainly almost immediately after they won the bid from England was that the, the British media went on the offensive to try and paint Russia in some kind of negative light in the hope that the tournament would, would be taken off there. And there was only one place it was ever going to be handed to, and that was us. But ultimately, that was never going to happen, and thank God for it. So, um, as well in the blog post, you said that with the success of the book coming around 96, when a lot of people were interested in uh, Hooli Lit, as it's been coined, the media that spoke to you off the back of the success were quite aggressive in their questioning. Can can you go into a bit more detail about the sort of questions they were asking you or uh, what sort of things they tried to talk to you about? Oh, we were... I mean, one of the... One of the we were perfect for TV because why did we bring the book out at exactly the right time? You've got two blokes who had show dads, you know, who looked like Phil and Grant from EastEnders, or the two blokes from Right said Fred, depending on your perspective, uh, who were willing to go on uh, TV and on the radio and basically line themselves up for attack, and that's exactly what we did. But the thing which we had in our favour was that we never bit, and we were also more than willing and able to put our point of view across. And so we were on everything from, you know, Radio 5 to GMTV, talking about the, the potential for problems um, and promoting our book, which is basically what it was all about for us. But the, the important thing was that it gave them an avenue. We were the foil. We were the bad guys. We were the fool guys. So, you know, everything, every time there was something, you know, violent racism, we would basically sit there so they could say to us, it's your fault, you two are scum, you're the problem, you're the problem. And we would just sit there and say, we told you so. We told you this was going to happen. And we are right. But they would never admit they were right, though, that we were right. We were always in the wrong. And it, it was... It was it got to the point in the end where it was bordering on hilarious for us because it was so predictable. And uh, we, just, uh, we just enjoyed it. We just had a lot of fun out of it because at the end of the day for us, I mean, ultimately, we went into to writing the books with the, the vain hope that we could help bring about a solution to this problem because at that time, you know, we were growing up. I had kids at that time. And, and I didn't want them going to football in... Yeah, in any kind of risk. I, I was bored of watching my back. I was bored of all the crap that was going on at football that had been going on at football. I didn't want to see another Hillsborough or another high soul. And I knew that there was a solution available. And one of the things we wrote about in all the books was the, the fact that that's, we could see what that, those solutions were. And all we were seeing was people attacking those at, at the heart of the problem, which has its merit. If you attack people, you're never, you're never going to solve anything by attacking the people at the core of it. You know, if you want to, if you want to solve burglary, then ask the bloody burglar because he's the one with the answers. But the game never did that. Now, one of the things we talked about, certainly in Everywhere We Go, which was the first book, 
and I talked about it in more depth in my books, in Barmy Army, in Kicking Off, in Eurotrash, was, was that academia in particular was, was loath to talk to us because they, they didn't want to, if they had talked to us, they would have had to admit that they were wrong. And that was, I mean, one of, one of the things you mentioned is when we, we finally got a meeting to go in and see Kate Howard. Uh, and she just basically threw us out. She walked in and, and I and said to me, you know, stop criticizing everything we try to do. And I just said to her, then when you stop do, when you say something or do something that I think is, is worthy of praise and not criticism, then I'll stop. But until that point, I'm going to start keep criticizing you because I think you're wrong. And she basically said, okay, this meeting's over, get out. It lasted literally five minutes. And from that point on, we kind of went on the offensive of criticising everybody because you've got it wrong. The fact that we're still talking about this decades after it became a major problem. The fact that millions are still being poured into the policing of tournaments. Or, you know, games, you know, average premiership game, you have a championship game, you have a non-league game. We're still talking about this, still costing a fortune because you have got it wrong. You all got it wrong, and you continue to get it wrong. And the people like me and, and Cass Pennant and all the other people who wrote about this, we're just sitting out back and saying, we told you so. And the next time there's an explosion, which it never even really will be at some point, of violence at a game, we'll say it again. It's boring. It's boring to keep saying it, but we just have to keep saying it. Uh, the narrative around the, the sort of Kate Howie um, meeting... It seems very similar to the the Tracy Crouch narrative with the the uh, safe standing movement and the the Football Supporters Federation. Do you see similarities yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, but again, it comes back to this thing: they're afraid to make a decision because they don't want another uh, another Hillsborough on their hands. They don't want another Heisel um, on their CV, and they don't want to be responsible for that. And, and as we're seeing, you just got to open the paper this morning. You know, there are no politicians willing to make decisions these days. That's why this country's in such a, a mess. And football is, you know, historically a problem area. You know, we, we could have solved the, the problem of legalism at football years ago. The, pro, the problem of safe standing is, is solvable, as everybody knows. It. You know, it, it, there are practical solutions to it now. And yet, to get someone to actually make that decision and run a risk of it backfiring on them is all but impossible because they won't do it. They won't make decisions because they're all bloody spineless. So, moving away from the the football and the issues at football, one of the big meetings in your life with um, Linda Laplante, if I've pronounced that correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, um, led you to writing the crew. Um, can you tell us more about this meeting and how come a meeting ended up trans, uh, transpiring into writing a book? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd written... Eddie and I had done the, the first four books, and then I think we'd done... I'd done a comedy book called The Geezer's Guide to Football, which is a parody of, of, of football fans, really. And, um, and I got a call from... Um, Linda Laplante's office to say that they had, they were developing uh, a series, uh, a, like a crime pre-series, and they wanted to do one of the uh, episodes about uh, the 
hooliganism. Um, and, and would I go in and have a look over the, the basic plot to see if it was credible? And, and when Linda the Plant, who had written Prime Suspect, which is one of my all-time favourite TV dramas, um, when, they, when she asked you to go and meet her, you go and meet her. And so uh, I went in, looked at what she'd written, and said, this is uh, laughable. It's completely um, without any kind of credibility at all. So she said, well, give me something else. Give me an idea. So I said, well, it's Thursday now. I'll come back to you on Monday. And she said, great. And so uh, over the weekend, I came up with an idea about um, uh, a hooligan group involved in crime. Because the, in- the, the interesting thing about hooliganism in terms of um, books and films is that hooliganism isn't very interesting as a subject. It's certainly not enough for a, for a whole book or a film. It's a, it's a plot device. And, it, and ultimately, it comes down to the story. It has to be the core is the story. And so I came up with this, this story, which features hooliganism as a thread running through it. Um, but, and it was all to do with car rigging and car theft and stuff like that. And they loved it, absolutely loved it. And they put it forward to ITV, and ITV turned it down because there was a there was a, a, a tiny, a, a very tiny element of racism in it, which they were a bit like to, to carry because the policeman was a black policeman. And uh, and she told me, you know, you should write this. This is a novel. So why don't you write it? And I, I toyed with the idea of writing a novel because I knew there was only so much non-fiction I could write. And one of the joys of being a writer is you get to sit down all day and do, you know, tap away at a computer and watch loads of football, um, which is not a bad life, really. And so um, I said, well, I'll write it if you give me a cover quote. And she said, and so that book was The Crew, uh, which came out in 1999, I think. And uh, and that book has sold, um, I think it's around about 400,000 copies now. Oh. And that led on to a sequel called Top Dog, which we also ended up being made into a film. And I'm currently writing the third book in that series now. Um, because the, the, it's, the guy at the core of it is, is such a great character, and we go through some, you know, all kinds of amazing stuff. And he's very popular, you know, so, um, yeah. And that's, you know, that's really how the, the Linda, Linda LeBlanc basically sparked off my interest in um, writing non-fiction stuff and that of course led into the Green Street which was uh, a huge deal I was going to come on to that because uh, even from a personal point uh, from some of my friends I couldn't not ask you about that that film's now probably iconic would be the word to use it's one of those that you sit with your friends and you, you quote probably line for line Um so how do you, how yeah, do you... all, all the great lines of Green Street are ones I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the credit. I'll take the credit. <laughs> how um, did that? How did it come from? So you've left the military. You've wrote loads of books. You've got. You've had a load of success with books, and then you think I'll have a go with screenwriting. Uh, how did that happen, and where did it come from? Well, well it, was, it was interesting. I mean, I've never considered doing going into film at all. Because I'd done a lot of extra work, I kind of knew how it worked, and I knew how I'd read the scripts, I knew how they were, knew how they were structured. Um, 
And then, uh, but out of the blue one day, I got a phone call from a guy called John Baird, who ended up uh, as a big name director. I mean, he did uh, the Irving Welsh film, Phil, in the end. And he asked me if I'd be, ever be interested in screenwriting. And I said, well, why not? I'll give it a go. And um, we worked on this movie. It's a short movie called It's a Casual Life. Um, which was a great process. I mean, it was a great process. We filmed it over two days. It was half of it is a big fight scene and the other half is a monologue. And uh, it's a casual life. You can link to that off my website or you can find it on YouTube if you've seen it. I think it's amazing. I still think it's amazing. Um, but whilst I was working on that, someone pointed me in the direction of, uh, um, of uh, an internet forum one of the hooligan forums. And, and there was this German woman on there asking about that she wanted to make this film about hooligans and stuff like that. And I had, um, uh, like most people back then, I had a, a, a few email addresses and ID identities. So I contacted, I made contact with her and, and found out a bit about what she wanted to do, tipped her out because it, you know, it was always a thing that this is a copy or a journalist or whatever. And, um, and over about six months, it became clear that she was sound. So I said to her, you need to speak to Dougie Brinson, because he's the bloke. She said, no, I don't want to speak to him. And I said, well, you're going to have to speak to him, because I'm not going to speak to you anymore. And this went on and on, and then eventually she said, I have spoken to him, which I knew was a lie, because I was still talking to her under my paper then. <laughs> but anyway, in the end, we made contact. And, uh, and uh, the story... The Green Street was—it's uh, was pretty obvious from day one. You know, it, it, it was—it was going to be American money, so we were aiming at an American market. So you had to have an American. Why do you get an American into an English into an English firm? The only way is he's a journalist. It's the only way we could do it. And it was all pretty, you know, formulaic. Um, so I banged out a first draft. Uh, and she noted, and in the end, she said, "Look, just come out to America and we'll, we'll sit down and write it," which we did. And, uh, and that's basically how it came about. Um, the money, the money came through purely because she, she was while we were working on Green Street, she was working on a movie about a boxer, a short movie, and that movie ended up being Oscar nominated. Well, as soon as you've got an Oscar nomination, the money is just thrown at you to the bank, and then we were off and running. Um, the, I've, I've only actually seen Green Street twice um, because uh, I have I have a number of issues with it. Um, but that's a long story. So you've had a lot of success right in in Hulu. Hulu. Oh, sorry. Can I say actually, before on the subject of Green Street, I had absolutely nothing to do with Green Street to author it. Oh. Green Street. Is that is it Green Street Two, the one in the prison? Uh, I believe so. I've not yeah, seen it, but it was nothing is... to do with me. I don't even earn any money. I'm glad it. you. I'm yeah. glad you said that because that is one of the worst films I've sat down to watch. Yeah, it's not very good. Year, <laughs> they're pretty grim. I mean, last year we did. There was someone talked to me about the idea of doing Green Street Four. Um, based around Leo Gregory's character, the Bobber character. Yeah. And I spoke to Leo, and I spoke to a few of the other lads who were in the original movie, and they were all up for it. And we, I, I fleshed out an idea. Everyone was really excited. Lionsgate over here were really excited. They were going to do it. 
And the American producers said no, they didn't want to. I don't, I don't quite understand why, um, although I have my suspicions. Um, but, but it would have been a proper Green Street sequel um, with, with exactly the same characters, exactly the same actors as the original. And uh, it was a real shame because we were all kind of keen to, to put right some of the mistakes that were made in the first one. So you were probably the most successful Hulalit writer out there with around 14 books, if I'm correct, and then you've had the success of Green Street. Uh, what do you what do you think the future holds for this genre uh, of writing and this this style of, uh, of storytelling? Do you think there is a future for it, or do you think now that football's probably calmed down a little bit and it's not as prominent, do you think it might fade away? I think um, Hamlet as a genre is dead. I think everything that's going to be said has been said. Um, I think there's still, public, certainly publishers that don't want to know. I mean, even, um, you know, I, I, I pitched an idea a couple of years back, I pitched an idea for a non-fiction book and my publisher said, no one will buy it. It's just no market anymore. Uh, which, which is true, really. Um, and one of the one of the reasons for that is the book that the genre quickly became flooded. I mean, I've always said if I can do it, anybody can do it, and a lot of people took that literally, and and it, and it became clear quite quickly that they couldn't actually do it. And then Green so Street Green Street Two was made. Pardon? And then Green Street Two was made. And then Green Street Two was made. <laughs> so the whole it kind of it all became a bit cheesy. And as I said to you before, hooliganism as a subject matter is quite boring. You know, it's all about the story. If you've got a good story, you know, I mean, Top Dog, for example, is a much better book than The Crew. But hooliganism is, is in the, it's kind of a background thing. I, I'm working on something now which which is um, more political than, uh, than anything else, but it still features hooliganism as a thread through it. And I'm writing the third book in the, the you know the crew top dog saga because I know it's because people keep asking me for it, so I know it, the market's there. But whether that's more to do with me or the genre, I don't know. I think the genre, I think the genre's dead. I've never really understood why there isn't more hooligan-based fiction because you've got groups, you know, you've got a group of lads. You've got, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be violent. You know, I mean, ninety-nine percent of the time, most people go to football as, as a group of lads. You know, it's it's fun. They do, we, you know, it was done because it's fun. People go to football because it's fun. You have a laugh. If you have a fight every so often, that's, that's a different thing entirely. But it's, it's a, you know, it's the kids know, you know, it's com- comradeship, uh, a sense of belonging, all those things that we go to football for anyway. So I never really understand, you know, why there's not more fiction based around football generally. I mean, I wrote a book called Wings of the Sparrow, which is a comedy novel about football. And uh, and that did really well, but it never really hit the mainstream. Um, whether that's because it's got my name on the front, I don't know. But but it's uh, football as a subject matter for um, fiction has never really taken hold. Not just in um, uh, in books, but in film as well. Quite often. I pitched a few, and and, and I, you know, despite the success of stuff like. Fever Pitch and Bend It Like Becker. Um, there's, there's no nothing. You know, it's it's, uh, it's it's very strange to me. I don't, don't never really grasp it. But um, 
you know, there were people like me out here who just keep plugging away with it because we, we like the stories, we believe in the stories, and hopefully one day uh, something will crack on. But in terms of the non-fiction literature, I think that's dead. I, I think uh, we'll never see the like of that again. One of my problem, one of my issues with it, uh, and I've, I've always been a bit miffed by this, is that there's never been any recognition for what happened there. You know, we are, you know, there have been a few books out before we we wrote, everywhere we go, Steaming In is probably the biggest one, and the best one. And of course there was Among the Thugs, which is argued, you know, most people would argue is the best book, I would argue it's not. But there's, all of a sudden, on the back of everywhere we go, you suddenly have, I think in the last count, there's something like 72 books came out, most of which were by first-time authors. Uh, publishers made an awful lot of money very quickly, but most importantly, they brought a lot of people back into reading. And uh, and that was never really acknowledged by the publishing world because we were, I always argued that we just weren't at the bottom of the literary ladder. We were the rungs, we were the rubber bungs on the bottom because no one wanted to talk to us. No one wanted to acknowledge what had, what had happened. Instead, the focus was always on like, chick shit, chick lit, you know, which sells next to, you know, most of it sells next to no books, yet the authors are lauded as some kind of huge deal. And I felt quite sorry for some of the lads who, who enjoyed really decent success with their books. I'm talking, you know, guys like Steve Cowan, um, Sheffield United, you know, and uh, Atty, um, ever you know, with Scully, who never really got the, the credit that they deserve to write in what are actually quite decent books. So, the final question for, for us is, how come you came about to join in the Collective? And given your experiences, what could you offer if Collective members were to approach you for any help or anything? Um, why did I join? I've, I've always been fascinated by... Um, the, the protest side of football. I, wrote, I mean, a few years back, I wrote a book called Rebellion, uh, which is about the history of the protest movement of football. Uh, it's available now as an e-book, actually, which is uh, uh, it's quite interesting. And I covered in that all kinds of stuff, you know, from the chase out stuff at Norwich to what went on at Man City to what went on in lots about Wimbledon, Charlton, all, all those kinds of things. And it was a really interesting book to write, and most of the chapters were written by guys at the core of, of what went on. So that, that's the, those are the facts, you know, based on personal experience of being right in the middle of it. And it fascinated me to, to hear these guys who were so passionate about their clubs to the point where they, they got involved in bringing about change. You know, it really interested me. So the political side of football has always fascinated me. I've argued many times that if football fans actually got themselves organised and became political, the power they have uh, potentially is huge. You know, um, and we've seen, you know, green shoots of that with stuff like the SLA and the DSLA. Um, but that's another argument entirely. But, um, and so when I, the, uh, the Football Collective popped up, I thought, oh, well, this is different. There was something different about it from the, the normal stuff and it interested me and I read a couple of things and I got in touch with someone and um, I wrote uh, an introduction about me um, but 
if I do have an issue with it, and it's one of the things I would like to bring to the collective, is that everything I've read has, has tended to be left of centre. And that's, that's kind of bog standard for stuff like this. And, that, and it follows a, a left is right and right is always wrong narrative, which I, I always say is, is counterproductive because you, you can't have a discussion without... Uh, a, a, an opposite point of view, and, and that's not to say that we are—we're um, talking, you know, far right, but we should be involving the right because they have much as much right to input into these discussions as anybody else. Of course, and their opinions are just as valid as anybody else's, you know. But up to up to now, and it's this that doesn't—it's not just about the football collective. This is about politics generally. The right. The, the average right of centre bloke tends to shy away, you know, from discussions because if you make a point of view, you know, the left are on you like a pack of dogs. You just really need to spend a day on Twitter to see that. And so you get no discussion. You just get opinion. You know, the, the left, in my experience, and I've argued this before as well, the left don't want to debate. They want to convert. And when you don't want to be converted, there's no point in getting involved in that discussion so you don't have a discussion. You just have an opinion, a single opinion, and which not everybody agrees with. And to look at, you know, you've just got to look at the last general election, the last two general elections, and the Brexit issue, you know, the leaving new issue, to see that there is some truth in that. Because no one ever expected, you know, 17.4 million people to vote to leave the EU, yet they did. And they came out of nowhere. And most people are there. Now, the vast majority of people who go to football, I would argue, sit either centre or slightly right of centre. Nobody's listening to their view. There's no one to to put their point of view across. And, and you know, to go back to the safe standing thing, again, it's another influence of that. We, you've, you've got all these layers of things. You know, left, right, football fan, non-football fan. You know, the, and people who are not football fans are not won't take that decision about safe standing and how are these people making decisions that impact on us without listening to our input or without accepting our input? Which comes back to the thing, I and mean, one of the things I wrote about a lot is you know, the football party, which is a single-issue political party with football at the core. Because everything else, I know, I've worked in the civil service, you know, I spent 18 years working for government, you know, another three or four years after that working for the civil service. This government's run by the civil service. Single-issue politics are the future. The two-party system, as we're seeing today, the two-party system is an absolute disaster. You know, it's falling apart. So you're, look, you're looking at a point where we're going to be tackling single-issue politics. And if you go to a... You know, well, not so much now, but go to Manchester. You know, how many football fans have you got in Manchester? If you could get every football fan in Manchester to vote on you based on the fact that you're only interested in football and issues that impact those two big clubs, you'd walk that election. The mayor of Manchester got voted in on next to no votes. If you do some research, you're talking literally thousands, a few thousand votes got him elected as mayor of London. Well, if you had someone run for that on a football ticket, they would walk that election. But it needs people to get organised. It needs people to have these discussions. And that's one of the reasons I like the, the concept of the football collective, because it has those discussions. Because they have to be had. 
people have to listen to them. But you can only have legitimate discussion if you involve everybody. And everybody includes people like me who sit, you know, not on the far right, but certainly right of centre. Well, Dougie, this has been brilliant. Um, thank you for your time. Um, if 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 anyone else is interested in debating this sort of stuff, uh, tickets are available on Eventbrite for our uh, conference in Glasgow at, at Hampden Park on the 29th of November. Um, there'll be discussions challenging the narrative is what we're aiming to do. Um, if you don't follow us on Twitter, it's FB underscore collective and it's just football collective on Instagram. Um Make sure you share this and listen up for the next podcast coming out. Once again, thank you, Dougie, um, and we'll be back next time.